0: And what happened is I had this spiritual experience that God was saying, I'm not done with you. You have work to do, my son. The pain you have to walk through will build you stronger.
1: Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. A-A-Deep in the heart of Texas. Welcome to episode number 258. And that was the voice of my friend Brian P. That you heard at the beginning of this episode. And you are going to hear so much more from him. And uno momento. But first things first, this here episode is being brought to you by Laura and Tanya. What, may you ask, did Laura and Tanya do? Well, they went to our website, www.soberspeak.com. They clicked on the little yellow donate tab, and they made a, a contribution. So thank you so much, Laura and Tanya, for your contribution. This episode is coming right out to Ewan's what do I want to talk about well I'm sure there's some people saying don't talk about anything just get to the speaker but you know what it's my podcast and I'll do what I want to <laughs> so anyway uh what have oh this has been a very uh I, oh just a, a very cool day for me in so many ways I, and I want to tell you this so over the past I'd say three weeks or so. I've been pumping out the episodes and I've been doing my thing and I've been living life and such, but I want to let you know that quite honestly, I went through a really kind of down time, Um, uh, you know, some some depression and and anxiety, uh, rethinking where I was in life and you know, and there have been some things that have that have happened, but I maybe it's just that, that it just happens, right? It just ebbs and flows in life, and um, but I'm feeling much much better today. All, all I know is when I get in those little funks, that I should just keep moving along, staying with the process. And when I say staying with the process for me, that means continuing to do prayer and meditation. Uh, talking to my sponsor, going to meetings, uh, trying to help somebody every once in a while in some form or fashion, doing service work, um, and, and oh, and doing inventories as well, right? Thinking about where am I selfish, dishonest, resentful, and afraid, and doing all those things. So that's, that's what had been going on with me over the past few weeks. But I will tell you today was very interesting because my son, my beloved son passed his driver's test. Yes, he is an actual driver now. I mean, I don't know. We we'd been practicing with him a lot, but he actually went over there, took the test the day, and you know, he was proud. We were proud of him. Uh, my my precious daughter is still recovering from some ankle surgery that she got and it must have been about i don't know three weeks ago now or so but i mean they do some major damage when they go in there to make the to do that ankle surgery i say damage there you know what i mean they they, they cut you open and uh, and then you got to heal up and go through the entire recovery process. She still has not been able to put on any weight on it. She gets around on a little scooter. Uh, I took her to the mall the other day, uh, but it was, you know, she just couldn't stay there very long. And uh, uh, it's just been kind of a, a much tougher recovery than we uh, anticipated. But I, I'm sure it will be over soon enough uh, just while you're going through it can be a little bit challenging especially for her but me as her dad uh, you know watching her go through it is 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 just tough and my wife is finally starting to get on the other side of the major car wreck that she had back in uh, July and I'm glad to see that she's doing so much better and and uh, it's just it's just cool to watch her uh, getting better uh, day by day now, and I'm sure she's going to be fully recovered eventually. Uh, but it just took much longer than we anticipated. And me, moi, I was honored to do a third step with a sponsee earlier today here at the house, and that is always that always lifts my spirits as well. That's about it. So anyway, on on to Mister Brian P. We recorded this live at the Tri-Cities event. It's a speaker meeting here we have in North Texas. And I don't really know where to start with this one in terms of an introduction. Let me just say this. You need to listen to this one all the way through. Uh, Brian addresses uh, a few things. Number one, his, uh, uh, I guess what you would call bank robbing skills, (laughs) bank robbing skills. I don't think I've ever put those three words together in the past. A a very, very traumatic uh, experience that he had in prison. Uh, You'll want to hear that. He talks about his admiration for the program of Al-Anon. He also uses a term in here. I'd never heard it before. At least I don't remember hearing it. Maybe I have at some point. But in fact, it could have been on one of the other episodes. Brian has been on uh, the podcast in the past, uh, but he uses a term called strategy drinking. (laughs) And I I like that. He talks about his relationship with his ex-wife and his kids, uh, the subject of compassion and much much more remember you just got to listen to this one all the way through please enjoy brian p and we will have plenty oh listener feedback at the end of this episode enjoy so tonight our speaker is brian p from smoking gun big book study group let's give him a round of applause welcome
0: I had him put this podium down here so I could look taller. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the first podium, but I couldn't even see over it. So, Well, hey, everybody. <laughs> I'm Brian. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, by the grace of loving God, good sponsorship, and the uh, 12 Steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, I've been sober since March 6th of, uh, wow, 1993. It's, always, you know, 29 years. You know, and, and here's the thing, if you're new or whatever, I didn't plan on getting sober that day, just want to let you know. I never planned on getting sober. Uh, I got sentenced to AA by my parole officer. But the day that I got sober, I'd been sober a year and two weeks previously, and I was on a three-month run. And my road dog, you know, you have a road dog when you come in, you know, you're running with him. And my road dog was Max. And uh, he was a Buddhist surfer from California, heroin addict. And me and him just jived, you know uh he'd been in prison i'd been in prison we had connection and he i was trying to act like i wasn't in relapse but clearly i was and he pulled me up on a friday night and asked me how long i've been sober and i said uh, dude you're at my one year anniversary three months ago and he and he said no really how long you've been sober like a day two days maybe not even and i said man i don't need this and i started to walk around him and, and he, he, angry buddhists are really scary and so he kind of shifted and got in front of me, and he just said something. He said, I love you too much to watch you die. And on that day, I had what I call the double surrender, which I think there's many surrenders after that, but I think the two primary surrenders are I surrendered to the bottle, and I surrendered my will on that day. And uh, I was 30 years old. I had just spent seven years in prison. You know, of course, I'd been out for about a year and a half. Uh, and I broke down crying. I mean, I just... I couldn't and I hadn't cried and shed a tear since I was ten years old. My brother molested me back then and I was just shut off and I was a you know, I wasn't a tough guy because, you know, I'm five foot one, but I was I was in my I was hard. I was very hard. And uh you know, he's six months later he started using, he's never been sober since. And I've been sober ever since. And I always it, it it hurts me. But it's like this idea that I'm sober by the grace of God, and I think everybody, like anybody, comes to AA. Anybody comes around, grace is everywhere. But I think grace only works if you accept it, and that's what I did. And part of me accepting grace was I don't have any more answers. I'll do anything I'm asked, and uh, and I need help. And that's not my mo my whole life. And I'm I'm. Uh, I'm going to let this, like, look, I don't know where this is going. I don't ever say this same talk ever twice because John and I just prayed and God's in charge. So anything that you, uh, like or is important to you, just know God gave that. And if, then if you think this talk sucks and you're talking about me in the bathroom or on the parking lot, just know you're, you're judging God and we don't do that in the <laughs> So my, my home group is the Smoking Gun Big Book Step Study. It's the most ridiculous name. Uh, I didn't pick it. I wanted the uh, Stove Touchers was mine. I wanted to be Stove Touchers. Um, The three of us who started it was my, well, my now ex-wife and my buddy Jeff, and I let him pick it. And um, we were down in Bishop Arts area at the time. And now we're down on Addison. Um, So we're up here Thursday nights at 7. We just changed. Uh, And I love that group. We even have a cowboy hat signed by this uh, drunk named Bubba bubba b from austin and he signed it so we i mean there's not a texan in that room you know for us we started it We're off. we're outsiders so, so uh so i got sober on march 6 93. how i got sober what i was like and how i found out i was alcoholic because my experience has been you know i, I, I grew up in stockton california now if any, who's from, anyone from california okay anyone know stockton yeah that's a great place to be from uh it was a violent place back then, and it's a violent place now. And, uh, and I grew up in a home where my be- parents were beer can collectors. It was like their hobby to collect beer cans, old beer cans. And, uh, it's like people trade baseball cards. They would go to these canventions. And so I'd been around alcohol my whole life and, and not in the bad part of it, but the excitement of it. And, uh, started drinking like, you know, normal people drink. And, and, and I, there's nothing in my early stage that would identify me as alcoholic. I mean, I, I would do this at keg parties, you know, um, you know, I never left five, 10 feet from a keg. I always had pictures in my trunk of my car, uh, when it got low so I could fill it up. So maybe that, I call that strategy drinking, but you know, I think that could be called alcoholism. My mom said, if you're going to drink, just stay in your car. Um, but it was after high school. I graduated in 1980. Yeah, I know I'm 60. I look 40. I get it. But, uh, I, um, uh, from 18 to 21 was this thing of you know I moved out when I graduated from high school moved out got in a room with a bunch of part you know friends you know and that, I just was independent and uh became a daily drinker and I didn't think I was an alcoholic I didn't drink in the morning my buddy did I thought that was a problem if I get like him I'll I had another friend who got violent and I thought well if I get like Norman you know maybe look first off I'm not fighting anybody <laughs> you know I'm trying to avoid fights and uh second off you know I I I did other things, outside issues in the morning before I went to work. I didn't have to drink. Uh, I could not see it, but I can tell you, I can describe alcoholism in me and how it worked. Around 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the afternoon, I have not drinking all day, and I'm at that two hours before, I'm grumpy, I'm irritable, I'm restless, I'm discontent, I'm annoyed. Everybody annoys me. They're doing their job wrong, and then like 30 minutes before I get off, I start thinking about going to the bar, and I start thinking about the liquor store, and I get relief even before... I drink. I start to feel better, and I drive to the liquor store. my I'm tapping my feet. I'm happy, and I go to the liquor store. I love drinking. I love everything about drinking. I, I love the, the uh, I just love the taste of it. I love bars the next day. That's how sick I am. I am a guy who just loved it all, but I I hid it behind these outside issues. It was early '80s, and I became a drug dealer, and uh, you know. when you're using the substance that you're dealing, that's a bad business model, just for anyone out there, if you're going to... And I was notorious for telling my dealers, like, hey, you know, I know I owed you two, here's 16, and and I'll get caught up, and then I just went around for about a year and a half, until I got to a place of the end, where everybody was, like, done with me, and I robbed drug dealers, which is stupid, because they knew who I was, you know, like, I mean, they just, like, Burk, actually, we know it's you. You're like, I'm five foot one. I mean, I have this like, and I would do things like, oh, Levato, man, you don't know nothing, man. And they were, it was, it, it was crazy. And uh, and this is the end. That's a door song. This is the end. And so uh, I was broke and I had a buddy running with me. Was, we worked on a crew of painters and uh, I had no more money and nobody was going to, you know, nobody was going to help me. And uh, I said, I got a, I got a plan. And he said, what's your plan? And he said, like I'll, I'll, I'll follow your plan. He'll follow me anyway, right? This guy, I don't, and he was like an engineer student. I have no idea why he followed my plan. And I said, we go rob this Kentucky Fried Chicken. And, and I had a fiance, whose dad owned a gun shop. He said, look, we can take him out. I got ski masks. We got rope. This will be a big deal. And we drove down there, ACDC, back in black. We're like, we're going to take this place out. And I roll in, and they say, hi, welcome to Kentucky Fried Chicken. Um And I go into the bathroom and, uh, I'm shaking and he's like, he goes, what's up? I said, this is crazy, dude. We can't do this. I said, no, I know. This is like, what are we doing? Like, and he, so he goes, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I don't know. Let's eat. So, so, so I have a nickname. I have a couple nicknames. One of them is three piece because I had a three piece original recipe, which is the only one. And the other one is Shorty P. I got that when I was in prison and, uh, went out to kill, went out to kill myself that night. And I'm not a, My glass is always half full, even when I don't have a glass. So I've never, I'm not a guy who like is deep and dark. I'm not that type of guy. I'm gregarious. I'm outgoing. Uh, but it was, it was really hopeless at 21. And I took a hope, I cut off a piece of hose and took my roommate's car out into the desert pretty deep. And I started pumping fumes. And, and I'll tell you what, the only reason that I didn't end that was because I was writing a letter to my mom. I wrote a letter to my friend, said, hey, I'm sorry I killed myself in your car. But then I wrote, I started writing a letter to my mom. And when I was the youngest of four, my brother Chucky died of leukemia. He was seven. I was five. And though I couldn't comprehend it at that age, growing up, knowing that my parents buried a seven-year-old, and I watched what it did to my mom. I watched on the anniversary of his death and his birthday, my mom would go in three-day benders. You know, I watched... How much that destroyed it. And I knew I had the mo- it was probably the only selfless thought I'd had in a long time, which is it would kill my, you know, it would kill my mom. And I still didn't know how I was going to have this pickle. So, you know, it's interesting in the big book. It talks about intuitive thought in step 11. So I was driving on the road. I, you know, I didn't kill myself. I walked around. I realized my only problem is I need lack of funds is my dilemma. So I need some funds and I'm driving on the road and I had an intuitive thought. And intuitive thought was you should rob that bank. And so I followed that intuitive thought. And uh, clearly it wasn't from God, it was from self. And I went in and I robbed that bank. Uh, I wasn't a good bank robber. Uh, you know, I was, uh, I, I don't, I, I got $50 my first bank robbery. I, and, I, and I got 50 because I asked for it. I wrote a note like, I have a gun, I'll kill you, give me $50. And uh, <laughs> like, I, I have no idea, I have no idea why you would do that. And, uh, and I remember like standing in line, I was a really polite bank robber, you know, I was like, waited my turn. Handed her the note. she's like looked down, gave me a $50 bill, and I ran, and I saw my note, I'm like... And so I went to the store, got some beer, got settled in, and then I drove across town and robbed another bank. I didn't get 50. I asked for way more. Uh, an interesting thing is the FBI at that bank was doing a bank, the bank robbery seminar teaching thing, and they got the call for the first one. They packed up and left, and then I went to that bank and robbed it. I had no idea. They thought I was a mastermind until they saw that I asked for $50, and they're like, and he's not a master. <laughs> and so, so I just continued on, you know, I just continued doing what I was doing six months later Asked my boss, hey, can I take the van? You know, I got to go cash a check, and he gives it to me, and I drive into town, rob another bank, go. and I'm thinking, you know, why isn't everybody doing this? They just give you the money. Uh, and um, then I'll, then what happened is I came out in the news, six o'clock news, newspaper, They didn't know my name, but they were looking for me, 8-8 crime, $5,000 award, and my roommates had cut it out of the paper that day and put it on the refrigerator. And when I came back, it was there. And I like, that's me. And uh, because I live with a bunch of stoners, I brought it out to them. I said, what's this? And they look at me. They go, oh, man, dude, there's some dude running around town. Robin Banks looks just like you. And, uh, <laughs> and, that, and, and that only reflects not how stoned they were, but how out of character it was, OK? And uh, two weeks later, I got arrested. Got bailed out. My parents did what they do; they bailed me out. Got me a lawyer. Ta- lawyer said you're going to prison for ten years. I robbed another bank. I thought that was a good idea because you know there's not a lot of five for one bank robbers on bail, and I thought I would get away with it. And, and but the, and and that's just drama stuff. And that's why I hid my alcoholism behind that because that's drama. Alcoholism was subtle. The progression was subtle, and I did all my time, and I did six years. Uh, got out. You know, it's 20 years sober before I told anybody I was raped in prison. My mom had a story, because I went from a medium security to max, and she I was in solitary for nine months. They thought this guy may die, because I had to. My cellie wanted to take me to the hospital, and I, the infirmary, and I wouldn't go, because I didn't want to get checked into protective custody. And uh, I was mad as a rattlesnake, but I, I was busted up pretty bad. And, uh, he said, well, then you gotta take care of us. And, uh, next day. And I'm not a violent guy. I have a lot of compassion and I almost killed a man. And, uh, and I remember when I was on the floor and him and his three buddies did what they did. I remember he cut me. I have a scar right here. I remember him leaning in and cutting me and saying, I'll see you tomorrow, punk. And, uh, I've never been as angry as I've been and as, as hard as I've been and as red. I would have killed that man if my cellie did not pull me off him. And I tried to get out of it, and I was covered in blood, and they just pulled me. And I went to Terre Haute, Terre Haute, Indiana, Mass Security Prison. I went from the frying pan to the fire and uh, spent nine months in solitary and then got out and did my rest of my time, no problems. And I won't get into that detail, but I got out, and I had a condition. And this is when I found out I had alcoholism. What time is it, John? Okay. So I got a half hour. Okay. So what happened is I got out. I did six, I did six years basically on a six year sentence. I had a five years probation. One of the conditions that my professor put me on when I went on the probation was that I needed to go to this IOP and I couldn't drink alcohol for 90 days. And I said to him, well, I don't have an alcohol problem. So, well, what, you know, and he goes, Oh, well, it's part of the program. It's an IOP. And since you don't have an alcohol problem, 90 days should be no problem. (laughs) And that kind of logic makes me angry, but you can't argue it. And I went to my 10-year high school reunion. And, you know, basically what you're hearing about is a guy who makes a lot of poor decisions. Like, I don't know why I thought, hey, we should go to my 10-year high school reunion, because I'm a winner. I've been in prison seven years. I was all over the news. (laughs) Like, it just didn't make any sense. But my buddy said, let's go. And I went, and I lasted. I was 30 days sober, no AA. I wasn't going to meetings. I was signing you know I wasn't going in, I was just signing them, and uh, 30 days without a drink or anything, no spiritual solution, and I'm just I'm just tight and tight and I'm getting tighter and I'm getting angrier, and I'm just ready to explode, and I walk in, and I can't take it. And I ended up in the bar that night. And uh, one drink led to two, led to four, led to eight, led to ten, and then I started drinking daily, and then I started doing outside substances, and then, you know couple months later, calls me and says, got three dirty urns. And uh, I said, what do you want me to do? He said, well, come by tomorrow. We'll talk about it, which is code for you're going back to prison. So I just went on the run. And this is when it changed. I, my parents loved me so much. I'm so blessed, you know. My dad, for the first six years in prison, sent me $20 money orders from my commissary every week. Every week. With a little note. I love you, son. Every week. And uh, I was judging him, like, why don't you send me 80 or 100 in my mind? Like, why are you trying to control my ice cream intake or whatever? Uh, What I learned when I was 10 years sober when we were playing golf and talking, and I paid them back, part of my amends to them was paying all that money back, every $20, even though they didn't want it. You know, they agreed to take it. And my last check to him, we were talking, he said, "You you know why I sent you $20 a week? instead of 80 or 100 a month, and I said, no, I really thought you were just trying to control me. And he said, no, son. He said, I love you so much. He said, I just knew that you needed to get something every week from someone that loved you. My dad fought in the Korean War. Never struck me. Maybe one time when I was a kid, spanked me. My dad loved me, and he was a kind man. And he was a good man. And I put my family through hell. And what happened is I go back on this violation. You get 16 months. They call me for mail call, and I think I'm getting my $20 money order, which I deserved, clearly. And uh, I got a note from my parents which says, um, we're done supporting you financially. And basically, are there any alanons in the, in the room? Raise your hand if there's al Okay. So al saved my life. Like, that's a trick, because if you believe that, you're, you know, because Al-Anon doesn't save lives. But <laughs> they allowed my mom the space to do what she had to do, which is write me a letter saying, I, I can no longer, you're 28 years old. You'll be 29 when you get out. You are on your own. We are not going to support you anymore. No more financial support. And, uh, and I thank God that an Al-Anon lady on my mom's bowling team pulled her aside and said, you're killing your son. And let me tell you, my mom buried Chucky when he was seven. Now, I I didn't know what I was like until I became a father. When I held my daughter, Quincy Blue is her name, when I held her, when she came out, it was a C-section, and the doctor said, you have a beautiful daughter, and uh, I cried and I wept. And when I held her, I knew unconditional love. I knew, and I knew instantly how hard that must have been on my mom. And when I made amends to my mom, I'm going to ask the mom, you know, is there anything you want to say? And my mom said, yeah, I'm going to tell you something. She was burying, it was easier to bury Chucky than write you that letter. It was easier to bury a seven-year-old son than to write me a letter saying she can't support me. And that had, that pierced my heart. And she explained it. She said, "Chucky got cancer. We gave him to the doctor. said, fix our baby with you. I had a choice. And the only reason you got it, the only reason you got it is because Monday through Friday, I would leave it in the mailbox five minutes, pull it out. The only reason is your dad on Friday put his hand on my shoulder and said, let him go. I'm the baby. I'm like the youngest. My mom's whole life was to protect me. And I forced her to have to step away from me. That's how selfish I am. I still today regret that I had to do that. And I know they say we don't regret the past, but I'm telling you right now, that is a regret I have because I never wanted to be that son. And I did that year. I got out, homeless shelter, could not drink the first time I was out. My professor came to talk. I thought he was going to throw me back. He sat me down. He broke his anonymity. He said, I've been sober six months. You're not going back. I'm not going to tell the parole board. You could go back for eight months, you've done seven years. What's that gonna cause? I want you, here's your choice. You go to a meeting every day for the rest of the time you're here, or you go back to prison. What do you want to do? Well, it's not a hard choice when you're 29, you've been in prison for a long time. Like, there's women at AA meetings, so I'm like, yeah, I'll try you AA. Uh, didn't think I was an alcoholic, and I went to the meetings, I took the bus to the meeting. My very first AA meeting, 29 years old, there's some magic in the halls. And for the men, who came up to me and welcomed me, and I was feral. I mean, feral. I had Axle Rose bandana, feathered hair. This is like 1992 at the time. Uh, I had a walk. It was a prison walk. I had a, a, you know, I pulled a bandana all the way down. I used to button my shirt and then let it down. Like, I always wanted to be a Vato, you know, I'm going to be a Chicano. I always wanted that. They were like my... Because I grew up in Stockton, and, I, and then I, you know, I moved to Tucson, you know, and I just like, that's, those are my people, and uh, I, I'm, I, I mean, I'm as white as you can get, but, you know. Uh, you know what, I was everybody I ever met when I came to AA. I know who I was, I was anybody, I, anybody I needed to be to be in your circle, that's who I'd be, and so I started going to AA, and I started uh, believing that now that I don't want to drink, I won't drink, and now that there's this Fellowship, I fell in love with the fellowship and I hung out with the guys that were basically going to the dog track and they're doing all the things they used to do, but they were sober as long as the guys that were doing big book stuff and talking about making amends and, and praying, which is like, well, that's way too serious. And uh, a year and two weeks, I drank. Then I got sober. And that day, two days later, March 8th, I met, I, I picked a guy, and his name is Kenny, Doc, he was like Cowboy Kenny, and I've seen him in the meetings. And I liked him, but I didn't want to do what he did. But I knew he was, everybody was getting sober. I asked him if he'd sponsor me, and he said, I'd love to sponsor you. It'd be an honor. And he gave me his big book, and he came out to this treatment center I was at, because I used to work there, and then I had to be a patient there, another story. And uh, he took me through the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm telling you right now, he did it line by line, and exactly as it says, and I had what is called a vital, like a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening. My whole personality changed. Everything, I shifted. I, beca- I was an atheist, and I became a guy who believed in God. I walked in an atheist, and I had a belief system after that, that there's a truly loving God. John, you can tell me what time? 8.03? Oh, pff, dude, we're going to have fun. <laughs> so there's two things about me. One, I, I talk fast, and, uh, and I walk fast, because... All my friends were big. I always had big friends. I think when you're my size, you have big friends. And so walking in the mall in the days, I've never stopped doing that. Uh, so I'll try to slow down my talk, but not too slow. But I'm telling you right now, the, the, the process of recovery that's outlined in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I don't care what other people do. I really don't. I don't judge what other people do. Now, I have, but I don't. 29 years sober, I'm wiser. It's none of my business. How you do AA, you do biz- AA the way you do AA. None of my business. I don't want to play God in that. If you ask me to sponsor you, I'm going to take you to the 12 steps. I'm going to introduce you to Third Legacy, you know, service work. I'm going to introduce you to the whole triangle, you know, because GSR, DCM, area corrections, I I was doing all that. And uh, and I I got awakened, and I was on fire. And I met the girl in treatment who became my wife. Um, We were in Tucson, and I don't tell this story very much, but... The treatment center I worked at, I didn't use, and the guy said, you can be a patient for 90 days and then come back. I worked in the barn. They did, they raced quarter horses. They trained them and he offered me a job because I'm, I guess I'm small enough to be a jockey. And, uh, that's when I went to the steps and about two months into it, I realized now my ex-wife, but my girlfriend at the time, she was there nine months already. So she kind of really 13-stepped me. I was pretty much a victim of her. And, uh, (laughs) so. Chad raises. Okay. I feel like I'm hunching over. So what happened is I made a decision, like, I can't work for this guy. He, he said, work 90 days and you can work back at the barn. But I knew, I saw what he was doing. It was unethical. And I told my sponsor. And I said, I feel obligated because he gave me this opportunity. He says, you're only obligated to God. You're not obligated to him. And uh, I borrowed a vehicle, which is called code for stole it, and drove into town. And uh, me and my girlfriend were talking about, she wanted to go back to Maine. I was going to go into Tucson. And she didn't talk about this a lot, but I went into town to this halfway house, IOP, and I asked this guy, hey, I'm leaving Eagle Crest, can I, can I come, I don't have any money, but can I stay here and I'll work for you? And he said, absolutely. And, uh, he, and I said, well, I have a girlfriend. He said, bring her. I said, okay. Now, my girlfriend at the time, she's debating, do I go to Tucson, do I go to Maine? She's in... With a ferry up at the ranch i'm driving back to get this car back because i don't want to get reported stolen she hits her knees in a stall and asks god god i need a sign it's got to be crystal clear what should i do should i go with brian into tucson or should i go back to maine and i drive up 20 minutes later after that prayer and i walk in i said hey chloe um, i have a place for us she knew the place i said we kimmy's coming to pick us up free Raymond board I work there. I'm gonna. We're gonna. It's safe. If you want to leave, we got to leave in 30 minutes. And she left. And we were married 26 years until I destroyed that marriage. My soulmate. She's gonna speak at uh, citywide. You should go hear her. She's an amazing woman. The last three years have been really hard. And I get asked a lot to speak around the country and, and that's not, I don't, that's not bragging. It's just like because I have a crazy story and I have a host of friends around the country who say they love me and I'm worthwhile. And I had two years of sitting in my apartment thinking I'm, I should just die. So we're living in this halfway house and we move back to, we moved to Maine and we start getting busy in AA. I, you know, I'm a high school graduate, barely C level, got a job at a marketing firm. Uh, with, you know, was convicted felon. I just told the guy, basically, I'm here to replace your two best sales reps. And, uh, he thought that was brazen. He said, I'll give you six months. And I worked for that man for 13 years. And, uh, you could take all the other reps and double what I, I doubled what they sold in a year because a guy gave me an opportunity. And I told him, I will be here early. I will be here late. I, and, and, and that's what I did. My dad gave me that gift and, uh, worked way above my education. And I got busy doing work in my service work, GSR, home group, DCM, and uh, but of all the things that have touched my spirit, you know, because there's a thing like if you really want to know God, get to know His kids, because that's where God lives, right? He lives in us, and He really lives in kids. They're pure, and He lives with our fellows. And uh, a guy told me that you want to know God, Brian? Get to know, get to know His kids. I started going to the maximum security prison in Maine. Uh, I ended up in a location in Maine where there was six penal institutions within 20 minutes. I didn't plan it. That's where I ended up. And I started going in. And uh, I didn't like what was happening, but there's one in group, and I called this guy Tom I. And if you've ever heard, haven't heard Tom I, uh, you should get one of his tapes. He's amazing. And I called Tom and I said, hey, they're not, you know, he, he said, why don't you do this? Why don't you get another day and take men through the 12 steps so they have a spiritual awakening before they leave? And I thought that was ridiculous, so I called a guy named Don P., who was my mentor, and Don P. said the same thing, and I thought, these guys are in cahoots. And uh, for 15 years, I went into that prison twice a week, because I ended up doing the farm, and I was blessed to take men through the 12 steps in the prison. I was blessed to hear fifth steps. I was so honored to have a room, they had a room called Brian's Fifth Step. Uh, I... I sat knee to knee with men whose society had thrown away, and I uh, watched them cry and watched them just their humanity just came out. And it's nothing that I did, OK? Trust me. It's God. And I uh, intuitive thought. One of my guys was there, and I said, what's going on? Where's John? And they said, oh, they're doing Kairos, which is a, and they, I said, what's Kairos? It's a three-day Christian thing, and they bring all these. I said, well, that sounds like an AA conference. So I started an AA conference in that prison. Only, only, never been happened before. An AA conference behind the walls, maximum security prison. I called all these hotshot circuit speaker guys, cash your miles in because I don't have any money, and you're so proud to be an AA. You can live in my basement, and I'll feed you. And uh, so they cashed their miles in and we brought, there was 25 of us going into that prison for a three day AA conference. We did that three times. It was the most powerful experience I ever had. Got to see the love and, uh, and I got busy. I had a kid, my daughter was born, my son, uh, work and, you know, I moved to Texas in 2011. Not planned. Okay. I was in Copenhagen, Denmark. Doing a big book retreat from some men, which to me is like weird. Like they're asking me to come to Copenhagen. Like sure, I'll come. And uh, this owner of this treatment center in, in, in you know this area, I got sober with him. We got sober, and we, he goes, he, he went with me. And then something happened. I at this time I had quit my marketing company, owned my marketing company, miss mean, and had some employees. And then some, he got a call and. It was defeated, and he's like, I just can't keep CEOs. And I said something that I didn't think I was going to say, which is, if you want me to sell to my partner, I'll move to Texas and help you. And then I thought, what did I just say? (laughs) And he said, are you serious? I said, well, if Chloe's okay with it. And then we got to Boston, you know, and Chloe said, sure. And uh, we moved to Texas. And I'll tell you what I love about Texas against New England. Texans are the most friendliest people. Like, when I moved to Round Rock, I was like, they're the kindest. They come and bring pies. And, you know, in, in New England, they, they, don't, they don't even look at you. They're like, you know, I was told my kids weren't even Mainers because there were, they had to be three generations before they got to be Mainers. You know, like, it was just very cold, but Texans were. And, uh, and I did that, and I started. And here's an experience I had. Don P. taught me in the 11th step. There's this vital spiritual, you know, vital, like sixth sense, right? It's this intuitiveness. Now, it's not the one that said, go rob the bank. It's a God inspired intuitiveness, right? Because we only have one voice. It's not like we have a Darth Vader voice and a, uh, a, a Yoda voice. Wouldn't that be great if we didn't have that? He, Don taught me that this intuitive thought, after we get everything cleansed out and we can hear God, you must follow the directions. And and you must follow that. And and I wish it was a different voice, but it's the same voice. And uh, my dad was having these little TAs. You know, he's struggling with like little strokes, and and I'm living in Round Rock by myself because Chloe and the kids are they're finishing their school year. And in April of 2012. uh, I came out of meditation my dad had just come out of the hospital again and, and god whispered to me and i believe it's whispering god never yells at me and i believe if i have to hear the whispers my spiritual house needs to be clean i can't be consumed with judgment resentment anger i must have be clear spiritually to hear the whispers god never yells and he's a perfect gentleman he will never come anywhere he's not invited like I need to invite him into my life. Now that I didn't create. I'm just saying. I heard it from him and a friend, and I'm like, well, "That's really good. I think I'll steal that." And uh, but the whisper that day was, "Go see your brother. Go see your dad." And uh, I flew out. My mom said, "You don't need to." And I climbed. He was, my dad was in my mom's in the bed, and he was, my dad was dying. They were married 46 years. They divorced. They remarried three times. You know when parent when you when you bury a child the statistics for divorce is really high but they always got back together and uh, they were 40 my mom saw what she wanted to see he's dehydrated but i knew he was dying and i climbed into bed with him and my dad had paul newman blue eyes and black hair and he was a kind spirit and i just climbed in bed and wiped the sweat off and said hey dad it's it's brian and the last words he said to me the very last words that my dad said to me was, I love you, son. I'm really proud of you. And I called 911. We took him to the hospital. And what he had was bladder cancer that they'd been missing. And it was stage four. And he was going to die within a month. And we all sat there that night. And then they asked us to leave. And as I walked out, I saw my dad's feet. they had not been taking care of my dad. The toenails were growing almost under he's a korean war vet and a kind man like i could i was not gonna let my dad die like that i was like that's not happening and i was mad and we all went down the elevator and they you know drove away and i went back up because the intuitive thought was clearly like you got to clean your dad's feet and i walked up and the nurse said to me she says what are you doing here and i said look i don't want any problem but have you seen my dad's feet she said i have i said please if you could just give me toenail clippers and a little wash pin, I, I, I won't, I'll be quick. He just, he cannot die like this. And she came back with two sets of toenail clippers and two sets of bins. And, and we sat and washed my dad's feet and clipped his toenails. And I remember talking to her about what a horrible son I'd been, how I'd been a disappointment and how I hadn't been there for them. And, uh, I started to walk out and the nurse grabbed me and pulled me to her and looked me right in the eye and said, I don't recognize any of the son that you just talked about. Like you need to let go of that because what I witnessed was incredible. And that is not who you are today. And, uh, I'm so grateful I listened to the whisper. You know, I'm so grateful for that. I, uh, I'm just going to tell you what's happened in the last two and a half years. And I get therapeutic here, but my trauma just started unwinding. It started blowing up, and it started having night terrors, and I could not invite my wife into that. Now, I'm not blaming that on my actions, but I was just like, I had to walk it alone. I'm a guy who, when my brother died at four, when I, when he got cancer, I was four and he was six. Everything shifted in my household to him, which was the way it should have been. But as a four year old, I don't know what's going on. And so I just learned this way to live, which is I don't ask for help. I don't trust people. I'll do it myself. And, uh, and I compartmentalized my life and I, and that's my whole life has been like that. And I started on um, 26 years sober. I started falling apart. Night tears could not, the one person that I love the most in this life, the one person. I couldn't invite her into that. And then the trauma took me where the trauma took me, and I had some behaviors that I had to get honest, and I knew, I knew she would probably divorce me. And I'm going to tell you, my kids will tell you, she will tell you, we didn't raise our voice at each other in 26 years of marriage. That's not how we... we but... This is the prayer I did before I told her, because what I learned is if I don't trust people, then I don't trust God. That's the truth. And at 26- year-olds, I got to say, I, I hadn't really trust God. I'll figure it out. And, uh, and I got to this place spiritually where, okay God, I'm going to trust you, and I'm going to tell Chloe the truth, and she's probably going to divorce, and, 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 and I'm not going to blame you. all I'm going to ask you, I'm going to ask you is that you walk with me because I don't know if I can handle that. I just don't know just walk with me and I moved into an apartment uh the, the eight years as the CEO of this treatment center you know me and the owner talking and said hey I think it's time for you know we to just we're, I, I like you my friendship is more important you know and I think it's ruined us and said I said okay so in one week I'm out of the house I don't have a job I'm in an apartment my buddy Jeff G said it's gonna it's gonna get dark for you I'm like nah I'm a rock star I can do this it got dark and uh I didn't fight for her. I just let her like, whatever, you got to process yourself. And she, she did what she had the right to do, which is like, I just don't think I can get through it. And she, we filed a divorce and, and I have no hatred for her. I have nothing. I mean, I have nothing but love. She was an amazing mom and I hurt her deeply. And our relationship today is a way better. Trust me. And, uh, but I want to tell you the story. I asked God to be with me a year, almost a year later. I get a call from a friend who, you know, anyway, we're in divorce papers, and he just calls and says, hey, I just want to let you know I'm dating Chloe. Uh, and it wasn't that he was a friend that made it dark for me. It was at the finality of it that this, I will never be with her again, and it's real. And uh, I wanted to make it about him, but it's not about him. They were free. In fact, when, I, when he called me, I hung up on him, and I had to call my friend Jeff in 10 Steps that I want to kill this guy. And then he said, you know how hard it must have been for, you, for him to call you? you were his grand sponsor. This guy like worshiped you. He loved you. And I, so I had to hang up on Jeff. I said, Jeff, I got to go. And I caught a call back and I got to make amends for hanging up on the guy who's dating my, you know, you know, cause it's right. It's none of my business. But that night at three 30, I said, I'm done. And I say this, I've just started talking about this. It's the most selfish thought that I'm going to kill myself because the pain is too much. And I live in a two-bedroom apartment, a two-story. Two I'm on the second floor, and I have a balcony, overlooks the parking lot. 3.30 in the morning, I text, I text her. Her phones are always off. Tell the kids I love them. But I can't even believe I, I... cannot believe that I was there. I uh, took my bed sheets with a noose, and I went out to the balcony. And at 3.30 in the morning, there's a guy moving into the apartments. Who moves into the apartments at 3.30? Like... <laughs> What's going on here, you know? And I'm like, he's 20 feet from my balcony. I'm like, what are you doing? I didn't say it, but I'm like, you know, and why are you moving so slow? I mean, I got things to do. Uh, And what happened is I had this spiritual experience that God was saying, I'm not done with you. You have work to do, my son. The pain you have to walk through will build you stronger. I smoked a cigar, watched him. He was still there, moving really slow. And uh, I went to bed. And then I got a knock on the door from four police, because Chloe saw it, and she did a wellness check. In my men's to her, one of the things she said, I don't ever want to get a text like that again. It would kill your kids. My daughter, Quincy Blue, lives with me. She doesn't live with her mom. She lives with me. Not because she hates her mom. We have a different relationship. It's just my relationship with her. I mean, it's a two-bedroom apartment. She could live in a bomber house, you know, because the house is nice in Bishop Arts, but she lives with me. And part of that is because I think she protects me. And uh, she's 20 years old. My kids are amazing. My son is Max, named after the guy who saved my life. And I'm going to tell you a story about Quincy, and then I'm going to read something. You know what's interesting? You ever go to a meeting when someone's, like, trying to teach you about AA? here 's what it is, and Don taught me this we 're storytellers, even the beginning of the book the story of how many thousands of people i believe I do big book workshops three day all over the place. I never do like real rigid you know like like i 'm trying to teach it 's about experience it 's about the God flowing through you. It's the fact that a guy like me, a broken piece of a man, as feral as I was, as bad as I was, can walk through this process called the 12 steps and become someone different. Because that's all what a spiritual awakening is. It's a personality change. Old cons, old ideas, old motives, everything shifts. The guy I was 29 years ago will drink again. And if he drinks again, I can tell you right now, you'll see me on the news. You'll just see me on the news. When my daughter was seven, her and I used to go skiing all the time. My son was too young at the time. And all these guys from the prison would come over. We'd do this big, we had a a 15 acre horse farm in Maine. And we'd do this paintball, this mobile paint company. And all these guys, you know, we'd bring 30, 40 people, show up at the house. A lot of young people do paintball, barbecue. And and a lot of the inmates that got out would come. And I knew that my daughter was too slick and too smart. She's going to know. I never told her I was in prison. And I told Chloe, I said, I think it's, you know, we're going to go tomorrow. We're going to drive two hours, be on the list together. And so I sat Quincy down. And I said, hey, Quincy, I want to talk to you about your dad. And she's like big blue eyes. She's small, which I don't know where she got that from, but she's small. And I knelt down, and I said, I need to tell you something about your daddy. And she said, what's that? And I said, uh, when I was in my 20s, I had committed some crimes, and... And I spent seven years in prison, and she just started bawling. My first thought was, too soon? (laughs) Uh, But she was bawling, and I thought I'd ruined the image. And I said, what's going on, sweetie? And this is what she said, and this is who she is. She said, oh, Daddy, you must have been so lonely. And she walked up and gave me the hug, a daughter hug, and said, is that why you go into prison and help all these guys? And I said, yes, yeah, sweetie, and, and I haven't been alone in a long time, and I especially haven't been alone since you came into my life. And uh, you know when I told my son? You know what he said? Cool, Dad, let's go play catch. I mean, that's just the way. <laughs> and I'm going to tell, I love a men's story because I think a men's, have power. I think the, the step that's forgotten is the ninth step is the people start doing them and they never complete them. And I think there's a lot of healing. And I made, I made every one of my amends, you know, and, uh, took me a long time. And the one amend I didn't even have would never thought was my brother Chucky. Now, I would have never seen this because he was seven. I was five. What possibly would I owe my brother an amend? And what it was was, I, people would say if I'd go to an Al Anon, sometimes I'm, I'm the token A speaker at Al Anon conferences because they love me. I bring such hope and I'm tiny and they, the, the, all the mothers love me, you know. And so they say, I'm sorry your brother died. And I would say this, yeah, it's okay. I didn't really know him. And then I came out of meditation that week and I realized that's really disrespectful. And I needed to go to California lodi stock he's buried in lodi we're living in maine i asked chloe you want to go to lodi california and put flowers on my brother's grave and i need to make amends and she said of course and we flew across and we went into this cemetery super big and i walked up into the office and i said hey my brother was buried here back in 1967 and she asked his name and I gave it to her, and she started writing on this map, and then she circled this, and she gave it to me, and she said, your brother's buried in lullaby land. And my knees buckled, because I knew what that meant, that they had a special section for the for children. And I walked out, and it was like, two months, five months, one year, three years, eight, no, it was just like all these children. And I sat in front of my brother's grave and I told him, I said, Chucky, I know we didn't know each other very well and I know that when I was little you were there and you helped me and, and, uh, I am truly, truly sorry that you didn't get to experience the life I got to experience, the first kiss, the driving a car, uh, all the things. And I'd taken my life for granted, and I ran it into the ground. And I'm, it, it's, it's my goal and my duty to live my life in a way that you will look down and say, that's my little brother, and I'm really proud of him. And I had a deep understanding of how painful it was and why my mom drank the way she drank after he died. I understood why they weren't there for me, because they couldn't be there for me. And every on my daughter's seventh birthday, it was just, it would drive it into me. I cannot believe having to bury that little girl. And my son's the same way. And yet I judge my mom for not being there for me or for drinking and being an alcoholic. And I am truly blessed. Okay, And I believe we are all blessed. And I, if you got anything out of this, just know this. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I love every piece of it. I love the group conscience when you argue about where to put the coffee pot. I love all that. I love, you know, I, I, I was such a jerk that when i go to meetings in these Alano clubs when I was new and I was kind of pharaoh and, you know, not gone through the steps and a principled man, which is all suspect. So uh, there's guys who'd have their seat, you know, the old timers, that's their seat. I would sit in their seat. <laughs> I'd get there early, sit in their seat and dare them to tell me to get out. <laughs> like I'm six foot four, right? They never did, but they started getting there earlier. So I'm going to read this. <laughs> and I think this is what, this is, you know, I never cried until I was 30. From 10 to 30, my brother molested me. He got me doing crimes. He died, he died two years ago of COVID. He was living on oxygen, drinking, smoking. Uh, he was not, you know, uh, I don't have enough time to tell you how I was able to make amends for the stuff I stole from him, but it's a powerful story. And then my older brother at his, at that, my older brother's Dwayne, and this brother's a great guy, not alcoholic. And at that, my brother's funeral, everybody's dead, but me and Dwayne. And Dwayne looks at me and says, looks like it's just you and me, brother. And then four months, five months later, he gets diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma brain cancer. And life's not fair. And there's no such thing as life on life's terms. Life has no terms. I determine what the term is. I determine what I accept or what I don't accept. That's on me. Life just rolls the way it rolls. I set the terms on what's acceptable. What I resist pains me. This is, I started doing the study on compassion because I believe this is what we are. There's a guy named Father Henry Nowen. I probably butchered his name. There's ministers in here. Correct me later. But he was like Notre Dame Divinity, big name. And he wrote this thing on compassion that has touched me. And he says, passion, the root of passion is to suffer. But the root of compassion means to suffer with. And he says, compassion asks us to go where it hurts, to enter places of pain, to share in brokenness, fear, confusion, and anguish. Compassion means going directly to those people and places where suffering is most acute and building a home there. Compassion means full immersion in the condition of being human. There's deep conviction that through compassion, our humanity grows into its fullness. And we build homes in the places that th- people don't want to, and we show compassion and love to people that don't want to, and that is the God flowing through us, and it's flowed through from you to me and me to others, and I am forever grateful. I love you dearly, and I, I gratefully thank you for asking me to um, to speak at this event. Thank you.
1: So Brian took me on an emotional roller coaster with that particular talk uh, I was laughing I was crying um, I was all over the place and uh, I'm sure he did you as well if you have any comments for Brian uh, you want to reach out to me I'll get him over to him or if you have any comments about Brian or any of the other guests that we have on the Uh, the podcast, the pod, feel free to reach out to me at John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. And I would love to hear from you. Or if you just want to write in and say, hey, John, uh, how are you? Or whatever the case may be, uh, feel free to reach out once again, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com. Now, remember, we don't want you sharing your gossip, but we would love it if you shared that episode or the entire podcast with a friend or family member. Pause your device, hit that share button. It may be just what they need today. Now, on to a little bit of a listener feedback. I wonder if I should start doing that more often. It's a little annoying though, just slightly. Nonetheless, Dan writes in and Dan says, Hi, John. I'm not tech savvy, but I want in. That was the subject line of his <laughs> of his uh, email. He says, I've been listening to the pod for a year. I started at number one, episode number one. I'm now through uh, 175. Good for you, Dan. Uh, Thanks for the quality of the speakers. Your program is inspiring. I want what they have. Can you get me into the group, please? Thanks, Dan H. Sent from my iPhone. (laughs) So I guess I just broke his anonymity. If you know a Dan H. With an iPhone. That would that that may be him, but nonetheless. Uh, so Dan, uh, when he says I want in, what he's saying is I want in to the super secret Facebook group. What it is, I sent him an email back with directions on how to do it. But if you are out there and you're listening and you say, Well, wonder how I how moi gets into that super secret Facebook group. All you do is you go to Facebook and you search and you search for sober speak secret group. And then there's a little button or something like that. I know everybody figures it out. It says like, uh, uh, let me in please, or can I get in or, you know, uh, uh, ask for admission or whatever the case may be. And then you click that little button and we'll, we'll get you on in there. So that's how you would do it. But Dan, we're so glad to have you in. Brad writes in and Brad says, Hi, John, I found your podcast in jail. And I must say it was more than a blessing to me and my slow recovery. I'm getting out now and staying clean is harder than what I was imagining it would be while lying in there taking all of those quote, Van Taz Dick, V-A-N T-A-Z-D-I-K, unquote, episodes with a Z on the end. Taking all those fantastic episodes in, laugh out loud. I love you, John M., and the show wouldn't be what it was if someone else were trying to host it. Oh, that's... (laughs) That's very kind, Brad. Anyway, thank you for what you do. May God continue to bless you and all your guests. Love, Brad, are. Well, love back at you, and may God continue to bless you as well, Mr. Brad. Keep us posted here, all right? Annie writes in. Is this the same lady who's Annie Get Your Gun? Or probably not, right? Uh, Probably it is somebody else. Anyway, she says, hi, John. I live in Michigan. I have been sober since January 5th of 2014. I actually don't have a sponsor. I talked to my mom, who is also in recovery. Now, that's kind of interesting, Annie. You know, I don't think you say it in here. No, I'm looking at it. So, when somebody uses the word mom, usually... They are from across the pond. Uh, I see you live in Michigan. My guess is, is that you moved from England to Michigan, but who knows? Anyway, she says, I haven't finished a full episode yet. As I listen on my way to work, I am really looking forward to episodes number 220 and 177, as mentioned in the one I'm listening to now. Oh, I know what she's doing. She's listening to the episode, and I mention Amy and Rachel on episodes number 220 and 177 and I can't remember which episode she was listening to but I'm I'm pretty sure uh, she was re- referring to Amy and Rachel nonetheless she says I absolutely love listening to Mark Houston and Chuck C from a new pair of glasses I discovered sober speak on Facebook Annie F. Wow. Well that's interesting. We don't usually have people discover it on Facebook, but I'm sure glad you did. And Annie, you will be glad to know, by the way, I did I responded to her said, "Please give my best to your mum." If your mum is listening right now, hello mum. But Annie, you will be glad to know that I will be releasing an episode uh, Mark Houston talking live and I also plan I don't think I've got it queued up quite yet but Chuck C new pair of glasses I want to get him in there as well like I've said before I had no idea when I started this uh, that I would be releasing kind of uh old time classics, if you will. But it turns out like a lot of the people that are new listening to this podcast have not been exposed to people like Chuck Chamberlain and Mark Houston before and, and Clancy and and all those folks. And so I'm glad that I'm able to uh, uh, release them as episodes. But thank you, Annie F with the big smiley face. I appreciate it. Hi. Oh, Susie writes in. And Susie says, Susie is. I wonder if her last name starts with a Q, Susie Q. But nonetheless, Susie writes in, she says, Hi, John. I am super grateful to find this group and I would love to join the Facebook group. Well, welcome on in, Susie. We're glad to have you. She says, I am two weeks sober today after 35 years of alcoholic drinking. Wow, two weeks. God bless you, Susie. She says, I live in. Auckland, I hope I pronounced that right, New Zealand, A-U-C-K-L-A-N-D, Auckland, New Zealand, oh, she's a Kiwi, and have been attending as many meetings as possible face-to-face, but am loving the online meetings as I am restricted on time right now because I'm working full-time and I have four children, two biological boys and two stepboys. In saying that, I am so happy I have not lost my children or my job Uh, because it has been close at times. I found Sober Speak when I searched Alcoholics Anonymous on Spotify two weeks ago. I have loved all the speakers on your podcast and can't wait to try and find the meetings some of them attend. Okay, that'd be cool. She says I also love your sense of humor and the way you present the show with such an authentic energy. Well, thank you, Susie. She says, for now, for me, it's one minute at a time. I get it. And one thing right after another. another. It's working so far with the support of some incredible people within our AA community. Best wishes, Susie, a recovering alcoholic. Smiley face. Well, Susie from This Recovering Alcoholic as well, John M. I appreciate you uh, writing in and listening all over over there where the... the, uh, Now, I'm assuming, so... I've talked about this before. I've heard it's a myth, but like uh, for those of you who don't know, New Zealand is right next to Australia, but I've heard that in Australia, and I'm assuming it's the same in New Zealand as well, that when you flush the toilet or when you run the sink or whatever, the water goes down the opposite direction because it's on the other way of the equator. That could be a myth. I don't know. I need to make it down to Australia. You know, in fact, my son, I swear last night said... Dad, do you know where I want to go? Just out of the blue. I said, where? He goes, Australia. I said, really? Okay, well, maybe we can make that happen soon. Uh, I wish he would have said like... uh Austin which is like <laughs> Austin Texas which is like driving down the street um because <laughs> it'd be much easier much less expensive um and uh i don't know just much less time in an airplane but he went with Australia and so i don't know hopefully we'll try to make that happen here soon anyway thanks for writing in Susie i appreciate it Danny writes in he says hi john i'm an alcoholic from Baltimore Maryland I failed a breathalyzer test that my federal PO gave me, uh, so he sent me to Avery Road Treatment Center. I completed my detox, and now I'm in long-term inpatient program called, uh, um, I won't say the name of the program, but it's in Baltimore. He says, I am married. One year and four months, and I used to smoke crack. My wife and I smoked crack, and she also sniffed fentanyl, but it progressed to her shooting up with a needle. She is now living with her son and going through withdrawals on her own. She wants our marriage as much as I do. I'm on a 30-day blackout, which is over uh, in the, the end of September. Not sure exactly what that means. I've reached that point where I'm at 52 years old. I know I can't go back to that lifestyle of drinking or using. I've lost so much. But this reprieve is giving me a new perspective. And as long as I keep my end days of drinking, uh, I think he means keep remembering that, and using my front, uh, using up my front. Perspective won't change. I know I will need much help to learn how to live and enjoy life without drinking or using. So I'm reaching out and I'm getting as much help as I can get. Well, Danny, uh, as you know, I responded to you and I said, Hey, brother, just make sure that you get plugged in locally there with some sort of group or some uh, people there locally in the Baltimore area. There are tons. Of folks that are available to help. And you know it's interesting about Danny? Danny actually sent in a couple of uh, photos of himself. I'm not used to seeing the photos, but you're a very handsome man, Mr. Danny. And I appreciate you sending in those photos. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, best of luck to you, my friend. Keep us posted. Diane writes in and Diane says, hello, John M. Well, hello, Diane. I just want to say I love your podcast with about three or four exclamation points. She says, I am six months clean and sober thanks to a 12-step program and enjoying life. I stumbled upon your podcast when looking for a good one, on, a good podcast on sobriety. I try to listen to one per days starting with the oldest thank you so much for what you're doing i share these podcasts with everyone in recovery sincerely diane s well thank you for sharing them, diane i appreciate it congratulations on your six months it's fantastic jeanette post oh this was in the the uh, secret facebook group post in the facebook group she says john she was in there. She's a genesis. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, John, I found your podcast last year and began listening while driving from Corpus Christi to Austin to visit my sister. I listened to you while delivering favors. Uh, I, <laughs> oh, I'm not going to tell you where my mind went. Oh, okay. Wait wait a sec. This is, okay. I got I to think about <laughs> what she's actually saying here. I'm so sorry, Jeanette, my, uh, I am, this is just me. Uh, anyway, she says, I listen to you while delivering favor, and it's with a capital F. I am going to guess that favor is some sort of consumable good of some of some, <laughs> of some sort and not what I'm thinking. But nonetheless, I'm glad you're listening to us while you're delivering favor, Jeanette. Anyway, she says, I cannot express the gratitude I have for you in this community. Well, that may disappear after you hear me reading <laughs> Your, your, uh, uh, email or your post on the, uh, what is this on my, on the podcast? <laughs> She says, anyway, it is infinite. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jeanette. She says, I cannot believe I got to listen to the person who found a group 13 in Dallas. I think she's talking about Don Jay on that one, but I'm not even sure. I've recorded a few of these things, right? And my memory is not fantastic. But anyway, wanting his sobriety so much, he sat outside. I have a... one of his sobriety so much because he sat outside. I have a male sponsor. When I asked Elvis P, Hey, what's the deal with men sponsoring men and women? He said, if I'm going to help you fix your messed up inside, What do I care about what you look like on the outside? July 5th, I celebrated 10 years. Yeehaw, Miss Jeanette. Um, And then she says, uh, he helped me. I'm sure he's talking about Elvis here. He helped me find God and create a foundation upon which my life sits. I am going to find the meetings you and your speakers mentioned. Yeah, it's a lot of different meetings. Well, I hope you can find them. One day I will show up and have a couple cup of coffee at your home group. Laugh out loud. She says, I'm not a stalker. Smiley face. Come on down, Miss Jeanette. She says, I cannot thank you enough for your service and the service of those who who you have had on your show. Hope we can meet as we trudge this road of happy destiny. I pray we all continue to grow in the sunlight of the Spirit. Thank you, Jeanette. Uh, you know, I've had, uh, we've had a lot of people show up, uh, both at the Frisco group. So I personally tend a couple of different meetings. Uh, one of them is the Frisco is, is called the Frisco group, uh, is in Frisco, Texas. And then the other one is the Frisco fourth dimension, which is another group. And Frisco fourth dimension is on Saturdays at noon, uh, in Frisco. Uh, you can find it just by searching for it. I'm sure on the interweb and we have a lot, not only, uh, uh, am I uh, able to attend those meetings? But we have a lot of people that you have heard on the podcast in the past uh, that come there that, they, you know, because a lot of times I do get people from out of town. Right. Uh, but a lot of times I just grab somebody from the meeting and say, come on over. <laughs> Let's record an episode. And they're gracious enough to do so. And we get them uh, posted. So. All right, everybody. That is Uno Ma semana of the sober speak podcast i take this one week at a time i hope to be back next week god bless you keep coming back it works if you work it and what's the other thing i try to say Um, oh yeah may god bless you and keep you until then adios love you guys